0: Glad you guys are here. Welcome again. My name is Tom. I'd love to uh, grab coffee with you sometime, hear more about your story. You can hear more about ours. Um, But I am stoked to be back in the pulpit this morning. Uh, If you're new with us, we are in week 13 of a series we started 13 weeks ago uh, called Jesus Is. And we're going through the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John is pretty awesome, Um, it's probably my favorite book of scripture. Old and New Testament, Um, if I could just have one, like if if something crazy happened and I could just take one book of the Bible with me, I would want to take John. Um, But we're going through this book because John is unapologetic about why he wrote it. And he wrote it because he wants every reader, every person who reads it, to believe, to trust in the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, This man, Jesus of Nazareth, was sent by God, that he was God in the flesh, sent by God the Father to come and redeem people, to save us from ourselves, to save us from living self-centered, sinful lives that are damaging to us, damaging to the people around us, and damaging to the world. So John's unapologetic about why he wrote this. And we've been talking about this throughout this whole series about what we believe is really, really important. Because what we believe actually influences our behavior. I would go as far as to say that what we believe to be true actually determines our behavior. We talked about how it's kind of like the software of our life. It runs us. So this morning, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're gonna be in uh, John chapter four today. Um, John chapter four. While you're flipping there, uh, I'm so pumped. A couple weeks ago, we, uh, our gospel communities started meeting again. We took the month of July off. Our gospel communities, guys, for the, those of you guys that uh, are unaware of kind of how we structure the church, uh, our gospel communities are the primary structure of this church family. Uh, our gospel communities are the primary strategy that we use to grow as disciples of Jesus. Sunday morning is the other one. It's important. We want to worship Jesus together. We want to we praise God together, but gospel communities... As um, the primary structure of our church, we're not a church with gospel community; we're a church of gospel communities. Does that make sense? It's really, really important to us. So, all that being said, I'm so excited to get back in the swing of things. Meeting um, summer's dying down a little bit; vacations are kind of going away. Back to school, so we're kind of back in this swing of actually being together, practicing the one another's of scripture, loving each other, getting to know each other. In some regards, it's been a really beautiful season. I live for gospel community. Gospel community is not an event, just in the same way that the church gathering on Sunday is not an event. Gospel community is a people, and it's been so, uh, such a blessing to me, to my family, to I know many of you um, to be back in the swing of things with gospel community, but uh, I remember uh, six years ago, oh no, probably like four years ago, pardon me. Um, four years ago, we were at the first church plant. Those of you guys that are unaware, we're part of a family of churches, and we, my, my family and I, we were in San Diego to plant the very first restored church. And the cool thing about that season of life was, especially when it came to gospel communities, is it was an, it was an urban area, so everything's so dense. So like, y- y- you, y- one plot of land has like seven houses on it, okay? It's, it's very compact. But what's cool about that? is people would move into specific neighborhoods and be so clustered together. It was, it was wonderful. It's kind of like the Greaves and uh, the McDaniels and those of you guys that have that cluster in harvest in. Think about that, but think about that with like a dozen people on like half of a block. It was so great. It was awesome. And it was really, really convenient when it came to our gospel community gatherings because what we would do is, um, in that season of the church, there wasn't really any children. It was like Millie and like one other kid because it was all like young professionals in the city, Right. Um, but what was cool about that was, because the houses were so clustered together, we could gather our gospel community in one house, and then we lived at, like, the, the top floor of a duplex right behind this house. So we could put our kids to bed, have the, the video baby monitor, go downstairs, and be totally in, engaged in gospel community, and if something happened, we're 30 seconds away. It was, it was great, dude. It was so good. Really conducive, but I can remember one specific night. This was four years ago. And Ebony wasn't feeling well. So she was, um, she was upstairs at our place while the gospel community was gathering, and she was in bed. Uh, in fact, the next morning, she had a doctor's appointment scheduled because she was pregnant with Vivian, our youngest. And we were getting closer and closer to the due date, and one of the things that we were struggling with was um, Vivian was transverse. Do you guys know what transverse is? Audio moms probably do. Transverse is when the baby's not in the proper position to be birthed. So, like, you're supposed to go head first, you know? <clears throat> uh, the baby was not head first. She was spun. We don't know exactly what position she was in, but it was closer to feet first than it was to head first. And what happened in our case, at least, was our doctor told us, hey, come back in a week. Um, I think it was like a week or something like that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, but he, he gave us, or she gave it, whatever it was, about, hey, like, you need to, like, we, we need to check on this, so come back so and ha- see if the baby hasn't flipped in a certain amount of time, we're gonna have to, like, C-section, labor right away to get the baby out. So we were kind of like, honestly, we were worried about it. And we're like, okay, this there's appointments tomorrow. Ebony wasn't feeling good on top of that, so she stayed home, and I'm downstairs with the gospel community, right? And, I mean, guys, literally, we tried everything when it came to getting this baby to flip all the natural remedies we could think of to you know, push it and like try all these different things to get the baby to flip and, and it didn't work. And our gospel community, they, they knew us. They loved us. It's, a fa- it's the family of God expressing their Christianity to the one another, right? And so they knew what was going on. So um, that evening at the gospel community gathering, they were like, hey, we, let's pray for Ebony and the baby right now. And mind you, Ebony's upstairs, right, in bed. And I'm like, of course. Like, she's got the appointment tomorrow, guys. Like, let's just pray, right? So the gospel community, all of us gather together. We pray for Ebony, pray for Vivian that she would flip, right? And close the gospel community meeting. I went upstairs to check on Ebony, and I get up there, and she's like, "Uh, I think the baby just flipped. And I'm like that's crazy because we just prayed that this would happen. And she's like, really? She's like, what time did you guys pray? And I was like, right around nine o'clock. She's like, that's when I felt the baby flip. And I'm like, this is crazy. This is like, this would be so cool if it was true. So we go into the doctor's appointment the next day. Baby flipped. It was amazing. It was like, I remember in that moment being like, God, the people of God, our gospel community, they went before God on our behalf and God answered our prayer." And we were worried. We were like stressed out about this. It was like our second kid, and we're like, what's going to happen here? And, And we had struggled with some miscarriages in between the two girls, and we were just kind of like, God, what's going on in this season of life? And the people of God, they went to God on our behalf, and God answered our prayer. It was a beautiful thing for us. In today's passage, we are going to read about a man who goes to Jesus on behalf of his son. And in a very similar way way to our story, even with the timing piece, this man is going to experience God intervening in his life in a very profound way. So go ahead, grab your Bible, John chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 43, but before I start reading, I'm going to pray for us, okay? God, thank you for your grace and your love. Um, Thank you that you're with us right now, Holy Spirit. You couldn't be more present than you are right now. And I pray for each of us in this room that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to the reality of your presence, the reality of your holiness, and the reality of your gracious, merciful kindness and love towards us. I pray, Lord, that you would um, hijack my mouth, hijack my thoughts right now. I want to honor these precious people I don't want to say or do anything that gets in the way of what you want to accomplish, God. Um, you are the Lord Jesus. You are the chief shepherd. We want to follow you. So help me to serve and love my brothers and sisters. Uh, love you. Thank you for this opportunity. Amen. Okay, so John chapter 4, we're going to start reading in verse 43, okay? I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, okay? So it says this. After two days, he, Jesus, departed for Galilee. Okay, after two days of What? Okay, it's important that we know. If you've been following along with us in this series, Jesus is referring to what happened with his, his experience with the woman at the well, okay, the infamous woman at the well. She's a marginalized person, kind of the outcast of society. Long story short, Jesus has this profound encounter with this woman that changes her. She runs back to her town. Remember, she comes out to the well to get water. She runs back to her town and tells people, I met this guy, Jesus. He told me everything about me. This guy might be the Messiah. Come check it out. Then the people come and they're like, they encounter Jesus, their minds are blown too. They're like, hey, hey, I know you're trying to leave, but can you stay here for a couple days with us? Will you hang tight for two days? Give us two days. And he goes, yes. So he stays with them for two days. It's a beautiful thing. That's what's happening here, okay? After two days, right? And then it says that he leaves for Galilee. Those of you uh, uh, guys, Bible scholars in the room, you know, Galilee is the region where Jesus is from. So it's kind of like his hometown, okay? So he's going back home. Let's pick it up. Uh, Yeah, verse 43 again. After two days, he departed for Galilee, his hometown. Verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Um, This might sound like a contradiction. The first time I read it, it certainly did. It said, he's saying like, hey, a prophet doesn't have honor in his hometown, but then it says that they welcomed him. It said that, they, like, that, they, that they, they gave him a welcome when he came in. So which one is it? No honor, welcome, what's going on here? What John is telling us here is that the Galileans, these people, they weren't welcoming Jesus because he was the Messiah. They, they weren't welcoming him as the son of God, God in the flesh. They weren't, they weren't welcoming him as the savior of the world, they welcomed him because he was a miracle worker. They saw him do cool stuff back at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. If you guys are familiar, we, we talked about that early in John chapter, chapter two. Jesus is in Jerusalem, a city, right? They're celebrating Passover, big party, big celebration of God's faithfulness. Jesus is in town. He's doing signs and wonders. People are seeing that and they're like, this guy, dude, he's doing some crazy stuff. So these people, when they saw him coming into town, the rock star Jesus Stay with me here. They welcomed him, okay? But here's the thing. Like, they weren't honoring him. They weren't welcoming him. They weren't embracing him. They were embracing what he could do for them. Are you tracking with me? Um, Over the years, uh, over the years, counseling, especially young ladies, I can't tell you how many times I've had this discussion, this counseling meeting, where um, a girl that is known and loved, um, she's heartbroken. um, And then they're heartbroken when they realize that their boyfriend wasn't actually pursuing her. What he was really after was something else, if you catch my drift. Really after her body. He, He didn't want her, he wanted what she could provide him. Guys, the people welcoming Jesus, they didn't want him. They wanted what he could provide them. Let's keep going, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Remember that story? He turned the water to wine at the wedding there. So same place, Cana, same city, same town. Okay, so he came again to there. And at Capernaum, different city, different town, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Okay, so Jesus, he's in Cana, okay? He, he, he left the, the Samaritan woman, the, the woman at the well, all that stuff, he comes down, he's in Cana, and the official is from Capernaum, different city, okay? It's like San Diego, LA, different cities, okay? Now here's the thing, Capernaum to Cana, that's like a 20-mile journey, okay? <clears throat> Guess how he got there. This is where you participate, come on walked. Absolutely. There wasn't like, there wasn't uh, cars. They, they, they walked. That's how they traveled, right? So he walks 20 miles. So here's some perspective for you. You might think, yeah, I could walk 20 miles in a day. No big deal. That's cool. Um, from this point right here, this is Margarita Middle School in Temecula. If you were to like head out this way, you need know, to walk down Margarita here, make your way towards maybe the freeway, right? From this point right here, you guys know where the Storm Baseball Stadium is in Lake Elsinore? Okay, if you were to walk here, from here to there, that's 16 miles. That's far, dude. Okay, so walk there and then add another 25% onto the journey. Okay, another four miles. Give you some perspective there, okay? This dude was desperate. He was desperate. His son, his boy, is on the verge of death, right? Now, I'm a father. I don't have a son. I have two daughters. I love them like with every fiber in my being, okay? I can't imagine something more devastating than your child being faced with something like this. So I get this guy's plight. He's desperate. He's like, I'm, Jesus over there. I'm gone. Like, I'll go find him. <clears throat> so he hears, somehow, this guy hears about this guy Jesus, about how Jesus has the power to perform miracles, okay? And he gets word that this guy Jesus is making his way to another city, Cana, right? So he leaves Capernaum and he seeks out Jesus, and then he finds him. Okay? Like, imagine this. Like, put yourself in the story. Like, imagine walking 20 miles, or jogging, or running, depending on how desperate you are in the moment. This guy travels on foot 20 miles. Okay? Imagine you've got to do that journey, and then you walk into a city, and you're like, I've got to find this guy now. I mean, just picture this guy. <clears throat> Long journey, and he's got to find Jesus. But it's crazy because he finds him. Like, it, he seeks him out and he finds him. And he begs Jesus to come back to Capernaum with him to heal his son. He's like, Jesus, my son is ill. He's on the verge of death. Come with me. I, I need you. I need you. I need you to do something. Like, please, my boy. Okay, let's pick up. How, how does Jesus respond to this? Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus kind of puts the guy off. Like, he basically calls him out. He basically says, You're after the supernatural, bro. You're not after me. And what's interesting here is, Jesus isn't just addressing this man. Okay, if you look there where it says, um, unless you see signs and wonders and you, or I'm sorry, wherever it says you there, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe that you is plural. So in the original language, it's not a singular, it's a plural, it's basically you all. So he's, the guy is talking to him, but he's addressing this crowd of people that are welcome, that are quote unquote welcoming him, right? You tracking with this? He's not just talking to the guy, he's talking to the people, But the official, he's desperate, right? So Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The desperate dad, he keeps at it. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. The child there, it's like a deep affectionate. It's not just child. It's like my my, my boy, my sweet boy. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, remember he's going back another 20 miles. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh seventh hour, the fever left him. That would have been one o'clock in the afternoon. Verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, the rest of my time, we're gonna talk about three things, okay? We're gonna talk about, if you're taking notes, jot these down. If you, I think there's like even a note thing on the app. If you wanna figure that out, it seems pretty convenient. Three things if you're taking notes. The first is this. We're gonna talk about the man's motive. Okay, next we're gonna talk about Jesus's response. And finally, Jesus's wisdom, okay? So the man's motive Jesus' response and Jesus' wisdom, okay? Let's jump in. The man's motive. Now, when we talk about his motive, I think it's pretty clear here, okay? Like, the guy wants access to Jesus' power, okay? This guy believed that Jesus' was, Jesus's power was capable of healing his son, okay? And he wanted access to that power bad enough that he was willing to take a journey. He was willing to, on foot, go 20 miles to track down this guy, Jesus, That he'd only heard of. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I can find myself in a very similar situation with a very similar motive as this guy. Like, God, I I want access to your power. I want access to your power. I want the power to change my circumstances. Um, For those of you guys that are over 30, Uh, take just a moment and consider, bring your mind back to what you did on your 30th birthday. Like how you celebrated your 30th birthday. What what was the day like? Maybe you had dinner with friends and family. Maybe you went on a trip. What was it like for you? Those of you guys that are under 30, think about a profound birthday, maybe 25, maybe 20, maybe 16. What did you do? For those of you guys over 30, what did you do on your 30th birthday? What happened? Um, I'll share with you quickly what I did on my 30th birthday. It was really exciting Um, On my 30th birthday, I pulled my back out. Uh, It's God's kind of comedic thing that, you know, you're struggling when you're like, you're like, I'm 30 now, I'm not in my 20s, and I pulled my back out on my 30th birthday. Guess how I pulled my back out? Getting out of bed. So it wasn't something cool, like, you know, I got in a fight, I wrestled a bear, uh, you know, I was, like, playing basketball, and I just tore this other team up, and, like, I just happened to—I pulled my back out getting out of bed— Okay, and it was really bad, guys. Like, I spent almost a week in bed. I think I spent like five and a half days not moving because if you move at all, it's the most excruciating pain. Any of you guys that have thrown your back out, you know. I remember laying in my bed for like five days and just like every, every like, five minutes, God, ah, Jesus, I want your power. Like, I want access to your power right now. Please make this stop. Please make this go away. Give me your power. I want your power. What about you? You ever had any experiences like that? Anything in your life? Do you ever find yourself seeking access to Jesus' power? Now listen to me. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I am not saying that seeking access to Jesus' power is a bad thing. But that's what we see here in the story. This man is seeking access. He wants access to Jesus' power And he finds Jesus and he asks him to come back to Capernaum with him to heal his boy. Jesus, please come with me, come on. Like, I need you to heal my son. His motive, he wanted access to Jesus' power. The second point, Jesus' response. How does Jesus respond to the man's request? Verse 48, let's read it again. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not, what? Believe. Believe. So, This man asked Jesus to come with him to heal his son, but Jesus is concerned with something completely different. He's concerned with not just his, but the people's belief. He says, you aren't seeking me, you're seeking what I can give you. But the man keeps persisting, okay? Remember, let's read verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And then... Finally, Jesus gives the man an answer to his request. He actually says no. He says, no, I won't come back with you to Capernaum, but your son will live. Uh, I want to read a quote from you. Um, Tim Keller, uh, gifted mind in the church, pastor uh, in New York City, says this about this specific passage. He says this, quote, Jesus says, go, your son will live. When we first see that, because we know a lot more than this man knows, you and I think, well, that sounds like a great response. It's not. It's a terrible test. This man is saying, please go with me. All this man knew about magicians, prophets, and the way these miracles were ever done was that the person who could do it had to go. The greatest miracle workers in the Old Testament up to now were Elijah and Elisha, the two prophets in the Old Testament. But even though they did amazing miracles, they had to be there. They had to say things. They had to do things. They had to put their staff on the man's face or they had to stretch out. or In other words, they had to be there. Listen to this. Jesus at this point is making a claim that must have been absolutely astounding he was saying, I'm not going to go with you. I can heal with a word. No one in redemptive history this man would have ever heard of had the ability to heal from a distance with a word. So Jesus' answer, his response to this man's request is basically no and yes. No, I'm not going with you. I'm not gonna do things your way. But yes, yes. I will heal your son, but I'm going to do it my way. Guys, what Jesus is doing here is absolutely remarkable. Like, do you see it yet? He tells the man, go, your son will live. And it says the man believed him and headed back home. Okay, this guy, this man, he started out believing that Jesus' power could heal his son, right? He started started out believing things about Jesus. And now, after coming to Jesus, he's walking home, and he's he's moved from believing things about Jesus to believing Jesus. Did you hear me say that? I'm going to say it again. He moved from believing things about Jesus to believing Jesus. Guys, what we witness here is the birth of this man's saving faith. Friends, there's a difference between believing things about Jesus and actually trusting Jesus. This man came to Jesus believing things about Jesus and he is walking home trusting Jesus. Jesus. Now, I think it's really important. I'm, almost, I'm gonna keep going here, but it's important that we understand what saving faith looks like. Talk about Christianity being saved by grace through faith. What does saving faith actually look like? Um, I, I brought a photo. Can you guys throw the photo up there? I didn't tell Ebony I was gonna do this. Okay, so that's my wife. That's Ebony. Can you guys see what's in her hand? It's a bow, and bow and arrow, okay? Now listen to me. What if I told you that Ebony was a world champion archer. <laughs> okay, she's the, she's the best in the world. <clears throat> okay, her specialty though is hitting bullseyes like perfectly. She can place the arrow wherever she wants to. Okay, short range, long range, it doesn't matter. She's incredibly accurate. <clears throat> okay, in fact, in her last 10,000 attempts from 100 yards out, She's 10,000 out of 10,000 bullseye. She's incredibly accurate. Just so you know, the previous world record was 500 attempts in a row. She got 10,000 out of 10,000, okay? World champion, expert in hitting the bullseye. Now, here's the thing this music stand right here that I'm preaching on, right? Let's say I put an apple right here, and Ebony's standing, I don't know, in the back of the room. It's like 15 yards, 20 yards away. Do you think she could hit the apple? Yeah, totally, okay? Now, do you think that she would hit it if instead of it was the music stand, like I grabbed Joel and he sat in a chair and we put it on his head? You think she could hit it? Yeah, Yeah, of course, right? Like, what about your head? What about your head? Would you come up and sit in the chair, put the apple on your head? What if it wasn't an apple? What if it was a golf ball? Would you stand here or sit here and let her take the shot? Guys, it's one thing to believe that ebony can hit the apple on a person's head. It's another thing to put the apple on your head. It's another thing to trust it with your life. Are you tracking with me? This man goes from believing things about Jesus to trusting him. And guys, I'll be honest with you. I'm gonna take a drink of water quick. Um, I want to be very careful here. Uh, There are loads of people, okay, who say they believe in Christianity, but they don't act as though it's real. They don't put the apple on their head. And I mean, I've traveled quite a bit. I haven't been everywhere in the world or anything, but I've been to enough places to know that there's like different flavors of this in different areas. Different people kind of tend to take on different things. But here in Southern California, one of the things that I feel like is just overwhelming as a pastor to watch and to see is I can see, like people say they believe in Christianity, yet they live as if money is the most important thing. Like they worry about it. They stress about it. They spend so much time and energy trying to acquire it and hoard it. It's like a driving thing. They believe in Christianity, but they trust in money. They believe in Christianity, but they entrust themselves to the cash, to the dollar. What Jesus does with this man, guys, is remarkable because this man came to Jesus believing things about Jesus, believing things about him, and trusting in his his power, and he left believing and trusting him. That's profound. The, the, The object of this man's faith changed. Guys, it's the object that matters. It's the object of your faith that really matters. It's the object of your faith that saves you, not the amount of faith that you have. You've heard me talk about this before, right? The the classic timeless illustration that pastors used forever with this is like the chair illustration, right? So if I have two chairs in front of me, I have one that's like old and rickety and like tore up, and I have one that's new and solid and strong, and I say, hey, you know what? This chair's been with me forever, this, thing's, I've, this has been with me for my whole life. I have so much faith in this chair. And then I have this new one. I'm like, I don't have any faith in that thing. Like, I don't think it can hold me. Like, this one can hold me. This one can't. I don't have... I have a microscopic amount of faith in this new solid chair. But in this rickety old tore up thing, I have so much faith in it. So much. And then I sit in it and it falls. Because it's not... It's not the amount of faith that you have that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. The object of this man's faith shifted onto Jesus himself. Jesus. Not what he could do for him. Not something else. Onto Jesus. Guys, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's literally what it means to be a Christian, to trust in Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Like Nothing demonstrates who he is or what he's done more than the cross, man. Guys, that's our like, that is our anchor. The cross of Jesus is the Christian's anchor because no matter what your circumstances say, the cross declares what is true. The cross says that God loves you. The cross says that you're really bad, you're really guilty, but you're really loved, <clears throat> okay? The cross demonstrates that God loves you even when you don't understand what's happening. He's the Savior, Jesus. He's the Savior sent to the world. God taking on flesh to live the perfect life that you and I never could in our place so that we could get that righteousness. We could be credited with his record. And then he dies the death that we deserve, nailed to a cross to absorb the punishment for the ways that we sin against him. Trusting in him is what saves a person. The Christian doesn't trust in money or power or looks or anything else. The Christian trusts in Jesus, the lover of your soul. Jesus alone. What about you, my friend? Do you ever find yourself like believing in Christianity but trusting in something other than Jesus himself? I do. If you're like me, I have really good news for you, okay? So did the man in this story. And he went to Jesus. He sought out Jesus. And the result was the object of this man's faith changed. What he trusted and changed. I was praying this morning, and I just felt this sense, this reality. I think it's real. Some of you need to run to Jesus No matter how far you gotta go, you gotta get to him. Some of you need to run to Jesus like today so he can help you change the object of your faith, what you're trusting in, just like he did with this man. Okay, my third and final point, I'm almost done here. Jesus wisdom, okay? Let's talk about Jesus' wisdom. What's so remarkable about this story is not just what Jesus does, but how he does it. okay, because how he does it reveals three beautiful things. I want to share these with you quick, okay? How he does it, not just what he does. How he does it it reveals that he loves the man's son. I mean, how? How does it reveal that? It's pretty obvious, right? Like, he heals him. The boy's on the verge of death and and Jesus demonstrates his love by healing him, okay? By healing him. It's not just what Jesus does, it's how he does it. The, The third thing that it reveals it reveals that he loves the man. How? He loves the man by saying no to part of his request. The man thought that he needed access to Jesus' power. He thought he needed access to what Jesus can do, but what he truly needed wasn't what Jesus could do. What he truly needed was Jesus. Verse 53 says that because of Jesus' response to him, he himself believed. Believed what? Believed the gospel. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, loved him despite his misplaced faith. Listen to me. Track with me, okay? He believed the gospel. That God in the flesh loved him despite his misplaced faith. That's crazy. That's scandalous. That means that God sets his affection on people who don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. It's grace, man. It's grace. It's not just what Jesus does, but how he does it, okay? The first one, it reveals how he, that he loves the boy. It reveals, the second one is that it reveals that he loves the man. The third and final thing, it reveals that he loves the man's entire household. Jesus' response to the man was not what the guy wanted to hear in the moment. Can we all agree on that? He comes there with an agenda seeking Jesus. I need you to come back with me to heal my son. And Jesus says, no, I'm not coming back with you. That's not what he wanted to hear, okay? But Jesus, in his brilliant wisdom, Jesus' response to the man results in the boy being healed. Okay, how Jesus did it, not just what he did, resulted in the boy being healed and the man and the man's entire household experiencing saving faith. Jesus is brilliantly wise. He's all knowing. He's so powerful and He's infinitely wise. Hear me say this He knows what's best. Even if it doesn't seem like it to you in the moment. I'll close with this. I'll call the band up. Not just what Jesus does, it's how he does it, man. Because it reveals things. How he does things reveals things about him and reveals things about the the world. God always has a reason for the answer he gives, okay? And here's what I want you to know: the outcome is always loving. A hundred, ten thousand times out of ten thousand. A million times out of a million. A trillion times out of a trillion. The outcome is always loving. Because it's who he is, man. First John 4 says, God is love. Three words. That's profound. God is love. It's who he is. The outcome is always loving. But the answers we receive from him are not always what we want to hear. They're not always what we want to hear. Guys, this man, he was not stoked to hear Jesus respond no to his request to come back to Capernaum. But the result, the result was God's love on display. The result was God's love on display. In the 26th chapter of Matthew, um, you guys are probably familiar with this. Jesus, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, he's, he's praying to God the Father. It's his last night of life, like, the next morning he's going to go to the cross and he knows that. But he's like, he's in this garden, he's praying to God, the Father. He knows the cross is coming in the morning and Jesus makes a request. And he prays, he says, God, please, like, if there is any, if there's any way to avoid the cross, if there's any way to deliver me from this suffering and still save these precious people, please, please, please let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way. And God the Father says no. And Jesus' response is just glorious. He says, not my will be done, but yours. The answers we receive from God are not always what we want to hear, my friends, but the result is always... Always God's love on display. I think many of us have come to Jesus with requests, with very real things, with very legitimate things. God, I need this. Maybe it is a money thing. God, my finances, I need help. Maybe it's health. God, I'm sick or my loved one is sick. Or maybe it's like you're struggling with insecurity. Or, or a relationship in your life. Maybe your mom has never, never said one thing kind about you. Maybe your dad has blown you off. God, I have these needs. I have these requests. I'm coming to you. We go to Jesus. We make these requests, but the answer he's given you is not what you want to hear. Maybe it's been a flat-out No. Or maybe you haven't received an answer which is driving you crazy which that's kind of like an answer in and of itself right not receiving one in my experience God answers our requests in one of three ways you've probably heard this yes, no or not yet guys this is what I want you to know regardless if you take one thing away today, regardless of the answer he gives, the result will, be always, will always be that God's displaying his love to you. A million times out of a million, regardless of the answer he gives you, the result will be a hundred times out of a hundred that he's displaying his love to you. Let me pray for us. Will you stand if you're able? I'm gonna take just a moment, okay? Like, and I'll pray. I feel like there's some of us that just need to like let go of some things this morning. Like that's God's desire for some of us this morning, genuinely, that we'd let go of some things, that we'd release some things. Is there anything in your life, friend, that you need to release? Is there anything that you're like battling with God for control over? <laughs> I just got a picture of, in my head like, of me arm wrestling Sylvester Stallone and like I'm not gonna win. You're not gonna win. Like. But Sylvester Stallone's trying to beat me. God's not trying to beat you. He's trying to display his love to you. There's some things that you need to let go of in your life. Holy Spirit, I pray peace over the room like peace right now in this moment for every heart. There's so many things that battle for our affections. There's so many things that try to influence us to spiral out of control emotionally or mentally or physically and get out of balance in life and, be, and not be in step with the things that you would have for us, not be in step with walking with the great shepherd who's also the lover of our soul, King Jesus. I pray peace over this room. I pray that you would help us to to know the truth that God, you're not holding out on us. You're not holding out on us. You're loving us because it's who you are. You can't deny who you are. For we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I pray peace over this room but the gospel of Jesus, the reality that you love us despite our misplaced faith and it's that gracious love that enables and empowers us to put our faith in you and you alone. I pray for every heart this morning that that would take place and we would experience peace and freedom and joy and that we would be men and women who trust in Jesus and not in anything else and that the joy that we experience from that would be like just overwhelming and we'd be able to experience it together as the family of God. I love you, Jesus. Grateful for your grace. Grateful for your mercy. Thank you for being so kind to us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.